This is the I Am Bio Uncut series, where we bring you a full interview from Monday's podcast, Complete and Unfiltered. In this episode, we're joined by Richard Hatchett, CEO of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, a global vaccine procurement initiative. So Richard, tell us a little bit about CEPI. What does it stand for and, and what is it exactly that you do for CEPI? First, I'm the chief executive officer. So that means I, I do anything and everything from uh, <laughs> taking out the garbage to going and representing the organization uh, wherever it needs to be represented. CEPI uh, stands for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. And the organization itself is a comparatively new organization. It's only a little over four years old. And it was set up after the Ebola epidemics in West Africa because it was recognized that there was a gap in the international architecture. And its mission is to develop vaccines against emerging infectious diseases and, and this is an important and, to ensure access to those vaccines for the populations that need them. Amazing. So when CEPI first learned of the COVID pandemic, what were some of your immediate concerns? And how did you think through the beginning and the end of the pandemic? Well, we had just established an emergency response protocol, sort of a, a staged elevation of emergency response in 2019. And when we heard about an outbreak in Wuhan, which was December 31st, 2019, Obviously, we were all on holiday at the moment, but but when we came back into the office, which I think was about January 3rd or so, we had elevated the alert posture. And so we were screening and scanning and scanning the horizon and, and trying to get information about what was going on. If you'll remember, you know, the first reports, the numbers that were reported were static for a while. There, there was a report of an outbreak. It was associated with the wet market. There were about 50 cases. You know, in the middle of the month, if I'm remembering correctly, they, they were the first reports of a couple of deaths. And then on January 11th, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, the sequences of the new virus were released and it was identified to be a beta coronavirus, which really elevated our concern because of the prior history with MERS and with SARS. And I'll come back and talk about MERS probably at some point, but we had, we, had made very substantial investments in developing MERS vaccines. And then between January 15th and 20th, the number of cases started to grow quite rapidly uh, from, I believe, around 41 cases on around the 15th up to you know, a couple of hundred or more by the, by the 20th of January. And at that point, uh, although there were no, no very limited epidemiologic information, but it was, it was very clear that one, this was not a point source infection. It, it was easily transmissible. The number of cases suggested very strongly that it was transmissible from person to person and the number of deaths were increasing. And, and so we, at that point, made a decision around January 20th that we needed to initiate vaccine production. And by January 23rd, we had established uh, three partnerships, three new partnerships to develop SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. And really, from that point, we were in a race with the virus. 
I'll, I'll spare this for sort of maybe maybe a later question, but I mean, I mean, our role over the course of the pandemic has evolved considerably. You asked about the end game for the virus. I'm afraid there there really isn't an end game. I, I think COVID is going to be an endemic disease globally for the foreseeable future, and I think we're going to have to learn to coexist with it. And I think that actually presents one of the ongoing challenges for vaccine development, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more too. So you talked about Sefi's role really evolving with the virus or with COVID. I'm curious, how had you, when you came together after the Ebola outbreak, how did you envision Sepi working and how has that role changed with the times? Sure. When Sepi was established, our mission was framed as developing vaccines against emerging infectious diseases and specifically against epidemic emerging diseases and explicitly not against pandemic diseases, because at the time, the only virus with, with demonstrated rapid pandemic potential was flu. And, and there was quite a bit of global effort focused on pandemic influenza preparedness, and CEPI was created to fill gaps. And so the first several years of our existence, we focused on advancing vaccines against uh, Ebola, which was the disease that you know, was the reason that we were brought into existence but also against loss of fever, Nipah, chikungunya, Rift Valley fever, and importantly for this story, MERS. MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, is caused by a coronavirus. Um, it can cause human outbreaks, but it has not demonstrated the potential for rapid global spread or sustained, you know, really sustained community human-to-human transmission. But MERS was the second dangerous coronavirus that we've encountered in the 21st century, the first, of course, being SARS. And there are other coronaviruses that are essentially, you know, among the viruses that cause the common cold and are very easily transmissible. And so we were certainly not alone in being concerned that we might at some point encounter a coronavirus that combined the attributes of easy transmissibility, effective transmission, and a relatively high fatality rate or mortality rate. And that's what we've encountered with COVID. So our investment in MERS, we had allocated around $140 million to develop MERS vaccines, some of which had already moved into phase one clinical trials. But I personally justified our investment in MERS, not simply because we needed a vaccine against MERS, which some people will agree with or or disagree with, but because we needed a prototype vaccine against coronaviruses. And um, obviously, when COVID emerged, we were able to pivot. I think most of our partners who were working on MERS vaccines are, you know, then very quickly became, you know, invested in working on vaccines for COVID. One big shift for CEPI, to, to go back and answer your question, one big shift for CEPI was taking on a pandemic disease and it was not flu and and there was not you know i mean there was no other international organization that was well positioned to jump in and catalyze uh, you know or ignite vaccine development against covid so we jumped in over the course of the pandemic first several months of the pandemic say january february march were really focused on that ignition 
role, getting the vaccine programs up and running. From about April on, we have been very focused on our access mission, ensuring that all populations can uh, have access to vaccines as they come online. And that prompted us working closely with Gavi initially, uh, you know, in conversations that went all the way back to January, and then with WHO to set up what is called COVAX, which is an effort to develop, procure, and deliver vaccines to the world. And then in recent months, you know, as COVAX has moved into a phase of implementation and, and delivery of vaccine, we've sort of shifted our gaze as an R&D organization and started thinking about, well, what kinds of vaccines do we need for the long term against COVID, especially with the emergence of the variants? We want to have vaccines that can address the variants that hopefully are broadly protective, you know, and, and resistant to the emergence of variants. And ultimately, I think we'd like to have broadly protective coronavirus vaccines that protect against not only COVID and MERS and SARS, but any future coronaviruses that might cross that viral frontier. So there's so many interesting pieces in that story that you just relayed. And one of the concepts I think that's really important for folks to understand is COVAX, you know, how it came into being, who is this partner, Gavi, that you mentioned, and what was it designed to do? Because this question, this conversation around how do we make sure that everyone around the world who needs a COVID vaccine gets it is increasingly in people's consciousness. And I'd love for folks to hear kind of what SEPTI has done along these lines and has been doing for quite some time. COVAX is a collaborative effort. It cuts across sectors. We we have Private sector partners. I mean, I mean, Bio is working with us. The multinational vaccine manufacturers are working with us, and the developing country vaccine manufacturers are working with us. But it also includes organizations like Gavi, uh, which is Gavi the Vaccine Alliance, which is a a big nonprofit organization that's funded by the Gates Foundation and and uh, you know, many sovereign countries to essentially procure vaccine for developing countries. That's what it did before COVID. UNICEF, WHO, and, and other partners in, a, in sort of a grand alliance to develop COVID vaccines. And, and I can, um, I'll talk about the CEPI portfolio maybe in a minute, but we, we've had you know, 10 vaccines under development presently uh, to provide a mechanism for procuring those vaccines and not just for low-income countries, but also for middle-income countries and even high-income countries. And then a mechanism for allocating them fairly because we knew that scarcity was going to dominate at least the initial months of, of vaccine availability. And then, and then a mechanism for distributing and delivering those vaccines around the world. We thought a lot about the design of COVAX when we set it up. I'll ask everybody to remember, you know, we're setting this up in real time as the pandemic is unfolding around us and we're trying to raise funds for it in real time. And the fact that we had to do that, the fact that COVAX didn't exist, you know, I think is a large part of why we're experiencing some of the challenges we're experiencing right now. But the design, the, the theory behind COVAX was to align incentives for everybody and, and to provide wins for all of the stakeholders. And the way that we were proposed to do that was to have a, a large portfolio of vaccine candidates. You know, early last year, we didn't know that it was going 
to be as easy as it seems to be to develop vaccines against COVID. Uh, you know, there was a likelihood that, you know, we might only 10 or 20% of the vaccines might succeed. So we, we set out to establish a large, deliberately diversified portfolio with different approaches to developing a vaccine, viral vectors, recombinant proteins, the you know, DNA and RNA approaches that was globally diversified so that the vaccines were being manufactured in a, in a geographically distributed fashion, that we would then have a procurement mechanism that would allow the, the vast majority of countries are not like the U.S. and not able to establish a big portfolio of vaccine candidates on their own. And so that was where COVAX proposed to step in and provide the benefits, you know, in terms of hedging risk of that big portfolio to small countries and to poor countries and to countries that couldn't support vaccine development independently. And, and, and then as those vaccines hopefully came online, all countries would benefit from, you know, the first vaccines and the second vaccines and the third vaccines to come online. And by pooling their procurement, we would be able to offer our private sector partners large advanced purchase agreements, which would provide a secure market, almost a market guarantee for them so that they could confidently make the investments to scale up their production. And that was the theory. The, the reality that is, has played out, on, you know, and I'll say, unfortunately, because we certainly haven't achieved all the goals we set out to achieve is that because we were building it in real time and because the vaccines became available at different times and because countries, the high income countries, you know, were able to recognize the early successes, we ended up competing on the market with high income countries. But, but because we were still trying to raise money, it limited our options for procurement initially. And a lot of that early supply has been bought up. And so what we are seeing right now is, frankly, you know, still a considerable inequity in how vaccines are being distributed at the moment, which we need to overcome if we want to end the pandemic. So you've sat in the crosshairs of trying to get vaccines out to everyone around the world. What needs to happen now? What would be the best next steps to try to get everyone vaccinated against COVID as quickly as possible? A lot of things in, in, in parallel. First, COVAX uh, needs to be fully funded so that we can deliver on our promise to, to procure and deliver 2 billion doses of vaccine in 2021 and, and, and continue that into 2022. The second thing that needs to happen right now, there, as I said, you know, the vast majority of, of vaccine that has been distributed has gone to high-income countries. The countries in North America and Europe you know, were the first to have really severe waves of the pandemic. And, and so one might argue that that's understandable. But you know, in India, we're now seeing a less well-resourced country you know, really, really crumbling under a, a tremendous outbreak. And I, and I think the concern, obviously, is, is that what we're seeing in India could be replicated around the world. And, and so we need to begin as quickly as we possibly can distributing vaccine to all countries to protect their healthcare workers, you know, protect the health, their healthcare systems, which are fragile to begin with, and to protect their most vulnerable populations. And I think for the time being, the first thing that that means is the countries that have excess supply 
that have enough vaccine ordered to vaccinate their population two, three, four times over need to start sharing vaccine globally to protect the most vulnerable. The second thing that needs to happen, and, and we're seeing real stress on supply chains for the production of vaccines, the, the critical raw materials and, and consumables that are needed to actually manufacture the vaccines, we, we need to put a lot of attention on the supply chain and we need to invest scaling up those critical inputs so that vaccine production can proceed. We need to, and we're working with the World Trade Organization on this, remove trade barriers, promote trade facilitation, remove customs barriers, so that free, promote the free flow of goods across borders to, to facilitate and expedite that vaccine production. I think we also do need to look at how vaccine manufacturing is distributed globally. And currently, there are only a few centers of vaccine development globally, North America, Europe, India, and China. And those centers have very large populations. We need more equitable distribution of vaccine manufacturing as soon as possible, but also for long-term security. And to do that, we're going to have to promote technology transfer. We're going to have to help regions that don't have sufficient vaccine manufacturing capacity in their own right. We're going to have to help them build that capacity out. That's a longer term project, but it's part of the solution. Makes tons of sense. So you've seen the evolution of our response to epidemics and pandemics. How do you think COVID has changed vaccine development and deal-making and international cooperation, maybe for the long haul? What changes are we seeing and which ones are here to stay? Well, I mean, I I think it's going to be this watershed moment in the history of vaccine development and manufacturing. I mean, we're going to come out of the pandemic with maybe half a dozen new platforms for vaccine development that have been validated. The mRNA, I think, obviously, is the one that's captured the most attention. But we're going to have new viral vectors, new approaches to recombinant vaccine development as well. And that's going to shake up the industry. It's going to shake up the economics of the industry. You know, vaccine development is no longer going to be the preserve, you know, just of a few large multinational corporations. The vaccines, the the new platforms that have been validated by and large are coming out of biotech. Look at Novavax and Clover, AstraZeneca, obviously an MNC, but they they picked up a vaccine platform from, from Oxford. Moderna, Pfizer obviously picked up, you know, a vaccine platform, but it came from BioNTech. So you've got a whole new array of partners entering the market. That's that's exciting. The other thing that's exciting is, is how we actually develop and test those vaccines. I mean, we shattered the previous record of four years. You know, it was previously the fastest time for development of a vaccine. The, the, you know, the sainted Maurice Hilleman did that in the 1960s. You know, we developed a vaccine, Pfizer, uh, in 326 days. And the world, the G7, have now made it a priority to shorten those timelines even further. So we've innovated in, you know, how we regulate vaccines, we've innovated in how we do clinical trials, and we brought innovative new technologies to the table. So I, I think COVID, the, the response to COVID represents a revolution 
in vaccinology. And the post-COVID world is going to be very different and very exciting from a vaccine perspective. Now, I've heard you speak of your goal of 100 days to a new vaccine. Can, can you speak a little bit about why 100 days and why that would be such a breakthrough? I, I think 100 days was selected both because I, I think it is within reach, within a comparatively finite period of time, but it recognizes that even though we did this extraordinary incredible thing of, of, you know, developing vaccines in, in under a year, that that was not fast enough. By the time vaccines were being released, there were, you know, over 100 million cases of, of COVID had been documented worldwide, and, and there were probably close to 2 million deaths. So that's not fast enough. We simply have to be able to do this faster in the future if we ever need to do it again. We need to improve, I'll, I'll just say, thinking about preparedness more broadly, we, need, we certainly need to improve our global surveillance. We certainly need to improve our public health response, but we have to have a, a ability to rapidly develop medical countermeasures in the future in case those first two lines of defense fail, which they could. And 100 days, I, I think, given the platforms that, we're, that are emerging from the, the pandemic, that gives us a real head start potentially on moving quickly. As I said, we've innovated with clinical trial design. Um, we have essentially seen almost continuous development, sort of, you know, phase one almost verging directly into, you know, later stage phase 2B or phase three clinical trials. The regulators worldwide have demonstrated, you know, significant flexibility. And we've brought vaccines to the table on platforms that are now going to be used for other diseases. And over time, regulators are going to gain increasing confidence with these platforms. And I think that's going to make their prospect of, of, of regulating new vaccines on these platforms somewhat easier. The other thing that I think we need to, that, that will be an important part of compressing those timelines as much as we're proposing is that we need to really game out the regulatory scenarios. And all of the vaccines that have been developed were first released under emergency authorization. And in the future, depending on the scenario, I mean, if, if we had a, a, a virus that was 20 or 50 times as lethal as COVID, i.e. a virus like MERS, which has a mortality rate not of 0.5%, but of 10%, we need to be able to think about risk, regulatory risk, in a different way. And thinking about when is it appropriate to release vaccines on platforms that we understand, particularly for pathogens where we may have been able to do prior work on related pathogens even before the new outbreak, when is it appropriate to release those vaccines to begin protecting populations? And what information must you have before you can do that? And, and how much information are you willing to collect after the release of the vaccine? I'll, I'll just make an observation. This might not be true for other pathogens, but for COVID, none of the phase three trials that have been conducted, to my knowledge, have revealed a dispositive safety signal. 
they have demonstrated, they've documented the efficacy, but all of the critical safety signals have emerged through careful pharmacovigilance. And I think that's an important thing to reflect on. Hmm. I mean, because of the size of the trial that you would even need to pick up on the incredibly rare events we do see from time to time would not be feasible in the most optimal of circumstances and certainly not under the kind of emergency we've been under. Exactly. I mean, I, I'll, the, the Sputnik V vaccine, I think the if, if you abstract from the vaccine, if you abstract from any concerns about, you know, Russian regulators and their stringency, but you, you just think about the process that they used to release that vaccine. They had what they treated as a well-characterized platform, and you can abstract from that too, but they, they had what they treated as a, as a well-characterized platform. They did early phase one studies, and they, they issued an emergency authorization essentially after the phase one studies with a post-marketing requirement. And so that was restricted use, but, but a post-marketing requirement to do you know, a, a double-blind, randomized, controlled trial to actually collect efficacy data. And, and, and then they performed pharmacovigilance. By doing that, they actually issued that emergency authorization in mid-August. So, so they gained at least three and a half months of, of time in terms of releasing a, a vaccine. Now, now, as I said, I'm, in mentioning that analogy, I'm, I'm asking you to sort of set aside any skepticism about the specific vaccine, but think about the process. Is, is that a process that we should consider in the future if we were facing a pathogen that had a lethality that was 20, 50, 100 times what we've seen with COVID? And I, I think that's a question we ought to be asking ourselves in this scenario we ought to be thinking through. Well, it's a fascinating set of questions. And I'll certainly say that, you know, personally, the last 18 months has definitely changed my conception of benefit versus risk. And I think it has for a lot of people because we've seen unprecedented risks that I don't think we even could have imagined before. So I think it, it behooves us to think about those questions seriously. The thing that many of us have had a real challenge wrapping our heads around is the truly massive impact of a real pandemic in, in terms of its, you know, the number of lives lost, the economic impact, the, the disruption to our way of life, the stress and strain it, it puts on all of us and on, on, on our healthcare systems. And I, and I think now that we've experienced, you know, at least a moderately severe pandemic, it's my hope that governments and partners across all sectors of society will really take seriously the imperative of preparing for future pandemics. I think emerging diseases are an emergent property of, of, of the way society is structured and, and our mobility and the globality of modern society, which gives microbes tremendous opportunities to emerge and to spread rapidly. And if, if we accept that this is really a, just a property of this world that we've created for ourselves, then I think we ought to take seriously the need to invest significantly in ways to radically reduce or even eliminate that threat. So Richard, I don't want to lose what was embedded in what you just said. First of all, I don't think most people think of the COVID pandemic as moderately severe, but your context tells you that this was just a moderate pandemic? 
You know, it's interesting. When I was working in the White House back in the Bush administration, I, I, I helped write the national uh, strategy for pandemic influenza, the implementation plan to, to go with that national strategy. And CDC had a, had a they, they borrowed from the, the hurricane scale, you know, the idea of sort of categorizing pandemics. And a pandemic, and, and, and I know the lethality for COVID is still, you know, under some discussion, and, and, it, and it may be less than 0.5%, or it may be between 0.5% and 1%. And on, on CDC's, you know, original categorization of pandemics back in 2007, that would come in as a category three or a category four pandemic. It wasn't even the worst case. I mean, the worst case in that instance was defined by, you know, a lethality of greater than 1%. Wow. So that really puts it in perspective. We're, we've just faced into a category three or four, but... There, there, there could be a category five out there. And I also heard in your statement that these increasing epidemics are an artifact of the way we're living, meaning there's something in the way we've structured our society that is making this more likely, not less? Yes, uh, absolutely. I, I, I feel very strongly about that. I mean, I mean, what you've got are a, a number of trend lines that are all pointing in the direction of giving microbes greater and greater opportunities. And among those trend lines are first the growth of global populations, the growth of megacities uh, in, in particular, the incursions of human populations into previously remote areas, new interactions with, with wildlife, uh, you know, mass animal husbandry, global travel patterns, the, the fact that literally no point on earth is, is more than 24 or 36 hours at the very most away from any other point on earth and, and, and the volume of travel that is taking place. I mean, everything that we have done has created mechanisms to enable microbes to spread. And if you look back at the emerging diseases over the last 30 or 40 or 50 years, what you see are increasing patterns of emergence, more diseases emerging, most of them causing very small, you know, maybe even single cases or small outbreaks. But if you look at the history of Ebola, I think it's really interesting. The, the first two Ebola outbreaks occurred in close temporal proximity within a few hundred miles of each other, completely distinct outbreaks in 1976. And then there was another small outbreak the next year, and then a long gap of uh, about 15 or 18 years before the next Ebola outbreak occurred in Kikwit in the early 90s. And then there was a, a sequence of outbreaks in Gabon in the, in the late 90s. And, and if, if you look at a map of Africa, what you see is this gradual increase in range of the area where Ebola outbreaks occur and an increase in the frequency of those outbreaks until 2014, 2015, when Ebola showed up in a region that it had never been in before in West Africa that had densely concentrated populations, terrible public health systems, and good roads, reasonably good roads connecting big cities. And you had a disease that for 40 years 
had been looking for opportunities to break out in an increasing range within Africa. And then it found a, a, a social milieu that was conducive to an absolute explosion. And similarly, with coronaviruses, we had a signal, a sentinel coronavirus outbreak in 2003 and another coronavirus outbreak in 2012. And then we had a coronavirus that combined the characteristics of transmissibility and lethality that COVID has emerged you know, at the end of 2019. This is a category threat. We shouldn't view emerging diseases as, oh, Ebola, now it's gone, don't worry about it. Oh, Nipah, small outbreak, don't worry about it. Oh, MERS, another small outbreak, different disease, don't worry about it. It is a categorical modern threat. These are not the threats of antiquity or the Middle Ages. These are the threats of the future. Hmm. So I've always wondered, how did you first get interested in emerging infectious diseases? Like, how did your interest in this first get alerted and how did it evolve? I mean, it, honestly, I, I first got interested in the early 90s. I mean, I, I can't remember exactly when I read The Hot Zone, which was more of a thriller, but it was actually reading Laurie Garrett's The Coming Plague, which I think was published in 1994 and described probably much more eloquently than I was just trying to do these trend lines that make emerging diseases a, a, a threat that we must take account of. In when I was a medical resident, uh, I actually had the opportunity to work on an Ebola project in Gabon in the late 1990s when they were having this sequence of outbreaks. And, and, and that certainly further stimulated my interest. But my involvement with biodefense uh, really only began after September the 11th. I actually was caught up in the response in New York City. I worked at Ground Zero for the first three days after the attacks, providing medical support to search and rescue workers. And after that, I had the opportunity to, to enter government and I moved into biodefense. Fascinating. Well, I, for one, am so grateful that we have your experience and your insights on this very important, perhaps the most important topic of our age. And just thank you for your ongoing commitment to it because it is saving lives each and every day. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for listening to I Am Bio. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite platform and give us a rating or review. 